Hi, and welcome to the 50 Shades of Food and Nutrition podcast, hosted by me, Isa Robinson. I'm a registered associate nutritionist, nutritional therapist, and certified intuitive eating counsellor working in private practice based in London. I believe that the way in which we think and feel about food is just as important as what we put on our plates, and that all foods can fit as part of a healthy and balanced diet. When it comes to our health and nutrition, no one size fits all. This podcast aims to get at all the nuances, the cracks and crannies, and the 50 shades of grey when it comes to what it means to practice authentic well-being, hopefully helping us all to feel a little bit more empowered and at ease about our health. Of course, this podcast is purely for educational purposes and not a substitute for proper medical advice and treatment. Right, let's get to it. And welcome back to the 50 Shades of Food and Nutrition podcast. I hope you are all having a great week. It is Tuesday and it gives me great pleasure to introduce a new guest and a new episode of the podcast this week. And I am going to be speaking to registered dietitian Maeve Hannon on all things nutrition information, communication and being a food realist rather than a food perfectionist. Maeve is a registered dietitian, nutrition communicator, and author of the book, Your No-Nonsense Guide to Eating Well, and founder of Dietetically Speaking, which is one of my most favorite Instagram accounts where Maeve really, really looks at reclaiming so many foods from diet culture and really debunking all the fads, misinformation, and scaremongering out there. Maeve is also a scientific writer with plenty of publications in magazines and websites, and she produces nutrition education for the food medic social media. And she's also just taken on a role as a eating disorder uh, specialist for um, Talia Kaleche. She provides weight-inclusive services for eating disorders and disordered eating, and has also got a huge range of experience in different specialties in the NHS, including pediatrics, gut health, and allergies. Maeve is passionate and experienced in fighting nutrition nonsense and helping people build a better relationship with food. In this episode, we're going to cover a whole bunch of topics, including the importance of nutrition communication, kind of the need for control around food, the fear of changes in weight, where the healthiest choice is not always the most nutritious choice. And we're going to debunk lots of common myths about detoxes, gluten, dairy, and food intolerance tests, as well as her Maeve's top tips for everyday gentle nutrition. Maeve, thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast. And if you're not already following Maeve on social media and following her work, I highly recommend checking out Dietetically Speaking on Instagram. I know Maeve is now totally going to talk for herself. So without further ado, let's get to today's episode. Before we get into today's episode with Maeve, I wanted to introduce our sponsor, Bimuno. We know that better gut health is important, but where do we begin? Bimuno is a range of prebiotic supplements that supports a healthy gut environment by fueling good bacteria. In the gut, and more specifically the large intestine, you'll find the gut microbiome, an ecosystem of good and potentially bad bacteria numbering in their trillions. When we talk about improving gut health, we're often talking about a lot of complex things. But one thing we can think about is creating a more favorable balance and flourishing ecosystem of these good bacteria. This is where prebiotics come in. So just to clarify, prebiotics are different to probiotics. And whilst probiotics are the live bacteria themselves, 
Prebiotics are essentially the food that feeds these beneficial microbes. Most prebiotics are a type of dietary fiber which can be found in foods such as asparagus, Jerusalem artichokes, other veggies, fruits, whole grains. And dietary fiber is a preferred source of fuel for these good gut bugs such as bifidobacteria. Bifidobacteria in particular have been shown to be beneficial for health in a few important ways, such as supporting the immune system, and around 70% of the immune system is actually in the gut, as well as mental health and brain function. At the Isa Robinson Nutrition Clinic, we are all about a food-first approach to nutrition. However, research shows that many of us don't get our recommended 30 grams of fiber per day, which includes 5 grams of prebiotic fiber specifically. Bimuna is a simple way to add more prebiotic fiber to a balanced diet, and it contains a prebiotic, galacto-oligosaccharides, or GOS, which travel through the digestive system intact, and once they're in the large intestine, they feed and stimulate the growth of this bifidobacteria, a good gut bacteria. Bimuno works in just seven days and is the most studied prebiotic of its kind, supported by over 90 scientific publications, including over 20 clinical studies. Bimuno have kindly offered listeners 20% off using the code SHADES20. Thanks again so much to Bimuno for sponsoring this episode. Right, let's get to it. So a big welcome to registered dietitian Maeve. Maeve, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm good, thanks. I'm absolutely delighted to be a guest on your podcast. Thanks for asking me. Uh, Maeve, I have been so excited about this conversation. I honestly have been following all of your work and amazing posts on Instagram for, gosh, well over a year now. And um, I knew that you would be the perfect person to have on for some of these conversations really getting at all of the gray around food and nutrition and eating. So it's such a joy to, to have you on and thank you for giving up your time. Uh, Maeve, do you want to introduce yourself to listeners and maybe say a little bit about your journey up until getting up to this point to dietetically speaking and yeah, just say a little bit about you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm a registered dietitian. I'm from Ireland and I currently live in the northeast of England. I studied in Northern Ireland and then I started off my career in the NHS. So I worked for about five years in the NHS. I started out as a general band five dietitian. Um, so getting a lot of general experience. I worked as a stroke specialist dietitian and as a pediatric dietitian. And it was during that time, actually around 2015, that I started dietetically speaking. Um, so that's my blog, website, brand, company. I don't really know what to call it. Um, but basically it started off <laughs> It started off as a bit of a hobby, really. So it started out as a blog and a Facebook page. Um, and then, yeah, kind of I started to develop it then onto other platforms. And it's really about nutrition communication and debunking fad diets and promoting evidence-based nutrition. Um, so I started that year around 2015 um, and then it was 2018 I moved into private practice. So around the time I started doing dietetically speaking, I also started um, doing a bit of nutrition writing or a bit of consultancy work on the side and I really wanted to go traveling. So in 2018 I left my job in the NHS and I worked fully online. I worked, went fully freelance as well um, and I've been basically self-employed freelance since then, um, working in a few different settings. Um, so I was back in Ireland for a while, covering for a private practice dietitian on her maternity leave. 
um, and I'm back now working fully online um, and my main clinical area of interest is disordered eating and um, so that's what a lot of my my messages on social media and everything is starting to focus on um, and then more recently I set up another initiative called Nutrimote with my partner Anthony and this is a hub for nutrition professionals who are interested in working remotely or who already work remotely. Um, it's kind of it's information, resources, job opportunities, that kind of thing. Um, so that's kind of my latest initiative. Amazing. Oh, my gosh. So many different areas. Um, I always think it's funny that perhaps you trained in dietetics, but it mm -hmm. sounds like you've been uh, a writer, marketing, educator. Um, you know, so many different roles in, in your career. Yeah, it's a really good point, actually, because I think that's a great thing about nutrition is it's, it can be so broad. It's almost, you know, whatever you want to make of it in terms of this, you know, you can work in education, as you were saying, it could be policy, it could be media, social media, it could be clinical work. There's just so many different avenues you can go down. Yeah, totally. And I love what you said about the kind of, um, kind of activism as as part of that and particularly mm -hmm. pushing back against some of the uh harmful messages that we see out there online um and you talked about nutrition communication as well as part of the work that you do being really important yeah definitely and it's funny because as i said it just started out as a bit of a hobby i just wanted to rant about some of the mm. annoying fad diets i was hearing about um and where it really started was I used to go to this group called Skeptics in the Pub that would meet up once a month and it was all about science, reason, critical thinking. And then I was like, oh, this is exactly what dietitians do, you know, specifically related to nutrition. Um, so that's what kind of inspired me to actually, I guess, make it a platform and start to focus on that and start to talk about pseudoscience. Um, but yeah, it is. It's, it's all about nutrition communication. And I guess that that's, you know, for most dietitians, that's central to their role, regardless of what exactly their job is. Um, so yeah, so that's what I love about the career. I love that skeptics in the pub. Um, <laughs> and perhaps just for, for anyone listening that might be a bit confused about what nutrition um, communication actually means. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, it's communicating nutrition information, but that's coming from kind of more heavy research papers. And you know, I, I wonder if perhaps you might be able to speak to kind of what happens between these research papers that can be mm -hmm. heavier to read and perhaps then when we see a kind of sensationalist headlines or we see things on social media yeah great question um so absolutely so we have on the on the one side of things as you were saying the the nutrition research itself and you know there's so much exciting research going on in the area of nutrition but there can be a bit of a mismatch in terms of the messages that people get and the headlines, as you're saying, or even the messages people hear from friends, family, celebrities, that kind of thing. And that's what I guess nutrition communications is trying to do is trying to bring out that nuance and explain it in a way that somebody can still understand, but it's, it's closer to the evidence base. Um, so you're, it can be tricky because you're always walking that line in terms of you don't want to kind of overwhelm somebody and get really technical and really difficult. But at the same time, you don't want to oversimplify something because it's important to explain to people that although this study found these results, um, actually it was done in a really small group of people or it might only apply to this group of people or it was actually done in rats rather than people or... Yeah. 
in a lab, in a Petri dish. So there's all these little nuances to bring out and explain to people, and um, we're trying to explain it to people in their own language and, you know, using the kind of simplified words that they would use. And it, it depends as well who the audience is. So nutrition communication can be, um, you know, to other health professionals or it can be to the general public. Um, I guess what I'm mainly talking about is to the general public. Yeah, and it, I mean, it's something you do so well. And I think I was always um, just really shocked by when I was kind of doing my nutrition masters, how mm -hmm. a paper would have a press release that would go to a journalist or some kind of publication that would then write an article based on the press release based on the paper and there's so many sort of kinks in the chain and it's so easy mm -hmm. for all of these little details like you said is it a rat study was it done on you know a small population mm -hmm. um, of young people etc so many areas that it can kind of be miscommunicated and we can end up with these ridiculous headlines that suggest a food will kill us or cure us that might be totally removed from the actual scientific study exactly and it's i mean the from the newspaper side of things or you know from certain websites that just want to get more attention you can see why from their point of view you know they want to make it as reader friendly or as you know clickbaity as possible but actually that's not serving people in terms of um accurately giving them the information that they need and it also it confuses the actual evidence and the public health messages that are out there and they don't always have to be complicated you know if we look at um you know the eat well guide or um a lot of the public health messages in different countries most people can easily grasp that or they already have an understanding of that and um you know not to say that they're absolutely flawless these public health guidelines um but in terms of the basics in terms of eating well you know a lot of people learn that in school and they have an understanding but then they become really confused understandably by a lot of these messages and there's one and there's a slide i use sometimes when i do a presentation about this and it shows that within one newspaper you can see one headline and it's like you know eat fruit and veg to save your life and then other another headline you know a few weeks later will say um you know fruit and veg will take years off your life and that happens with so many different foods and drinks so people are just getting really unnecessarily confusing messages totally totally i definitely have seen that before um with certain foods um mm -hmm. coming out and i think you know the the clickbait stuff is and how you know those publications benefit from us just clicking on those those headlines mm -hmm. um can be really really damaging and, and so much does seem to get confused yeah absolutely so maybe you recently wrote a book i did and your book is called Your No-Nonsense Guide to Eating Well. And I would love, um, and I'm super curious to hear a little bit about your motivations for writing that and a little bit behind it. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, so I released this a few months ago now. Um, and basically, it was something that I wanted to write to really what we've been talking about, to simplify some of the confusing messages that are out there and really bring it back to basics. So although nutrition is really nuanced, you know, it's a really complicated science. When we bring it down to some of the key messages that people need in terms of a practical sense, you know, we don't need to overcomplicate those. Obviously it depends on each individual and, and that's where the individual advice comes in. If somebody has a medical condition or is struggling with their relationship with food, you know, there's so many instances where obviously it is individual, but if we bring it back to 
again, the general population, what are some of the key messages um, that are going to be helpful? So that's what I tried to do with the book, tried to keep it, you know, really simple. And, you know, it's not a very big book or anything like that. Um, basically, I've gone through 10 of my top tips for eating well. Um, I've gone through then practical tips around shopping and meals and snacks. Um, and then I've one chapter in there about a healthy mindset with food. And it's all about being a food realist rather than a food perfectionist. And then I've included 50 just quick and easy meal ideas, um, which is basically kind of what I share on social media. When anytime I share recipes or meal ideas, they're just generally like a few ingredients, just really quick. Um, and that's kind of my style just in terms of taking the pressure off. Um, I know it's fantastic when, you know, people have time to, um, to focus on cooking and it can be such a lovely, like mindful, relaxing activity. But there's also a lot of times when people just don't have the time and they just need something quick and effective. Um, so I quite like sharing those type of recipes. Totally. And I absolutely, I absolutely love your book. And what I think is so nice about those recipes as well is they seem to be so accessible for so many different people. And a bit like you said, sometimes chopping that onion is such a nice release after a really busy day. Mm -hmm. And other times, um, you know, we've got so many other things going on or we've got kids to look after, or we've got uh, work over running. And what I love about your recipes is that they're really simple things that you can find in the supermarket um, and I think that they're really nice for, for people on different budgets as well and how you've been really inclusive to all of that. Oh thank you so much I'm really glad to hear that. Um, and Maeve I'm curious before we maybe come on to some of those top tips mm -hmm. um, and before we come on to some of the biggest misconceptions that perhaps have annoyed you in the past as a dietitian. I'm curious if you might be able to speak to what a food realist might be over a food perfectionist because I thought that that was really interesting. Yeah so really what it's about is it's because if we think about a food perfectionist that's being very black and white in terms of food rules and in terms of feeling like there is one perfect diet that we can achieve and that's just not the case and we it's basically it's this kind of false aim that we can start to create and we can put so much pressure on ourselves. We can start to feel so guilty thinking that certain foods are good, certain foods are bad, when really what we need to do is take a step back. And when we adopt the mindset of a food realist, it's really putting everything into perspective. It's looking at the bigger picture of health and wellness, which includes mental health, includes socializing, it includes physical health, it includes, you know, going to the doctor to get your smear test. It's, you know, it's all of these things. Um, and if we just hone in and just focused on nutrition at the expense of all of the different pieces in the health puzzle, um, then that's not good for us. That's not good for our health. And being obsessed with food in itself is unhealthy. Um, so that's what it's about. It's about taking a step back and being kind to yourself and also just really putting things in perspective and having that bit of flexibility, that, that food flexibility is really important. Yeah. Oh my gosh, absolutely. And that really speaks to all of the um, messages that I'm always trying to embody uh, myself, but also um, support individuals with in, in my own practice. And I love what you said about perhaps zooming out and being kind of kinder to ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I know that something comes up um, in, in clinic a lot for me, and, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this, Maeve, but mm -hmm. uh, people often thinking, well, if I'm being kind to myself around food, I'm just, you know, giving myself a green light or I'm letting myself off a hook. Um, almost as though including a, a wider range of foods might in some ways then be 
you know, not having enough control over ourselves. And I'm curious if you had any thoughts on that or anything that speaks to that. Yeah. So I guess with those conversations and they can be quite common, it's all about getting to the root of the issue. So what is, what's actually behind that? So what's the person really saying? And it's going to be different for different people, but a lot of the time what's really coming out there is the fear of weight gain. And it's, it's about looking at that. It's about seeing, again, putting that in perspective and, you know, looking at, um, at the evidence related to that. And also around, again, you know, the bigger picture of health includes enjoyment, includes that flexibility. And for some people, it's going to be the absolute best thing for them to, um, to embrace that flexibility. And so it's, sometimes it's about taking a look at that rule that somebody has and seeing, well, is this serving you? Um, how has this played out over the years? What might it look like if we did this a little bit differently um, and included more flexibility? And understandably, it's something that can take a bit of time and it's something that people can feel anxious about as well. If they're you know, very used to having certain rules or certain habits, that's where I guess having the individual support um, with making these changes can be really helpful. Um, and it's all about doing it gradually as well. It's not like a, you know, it's not like flipping a switch and it's automatically going to change. Um, it's about doing things gradually at a pace that somebody's comfortable with. Totally. And I'm so glad that you brought that um elephant in the room into it which is this often underlying fear of of weight gain that we see mm -hmm. in clinical eating disorders but we also see across the culture um as diet culture promotes and, and often wellness culture as well and i think that that's a big topic and perhaps um i'm going to save that um for mm -hmm. for a different episode but also this sense of kind of our our health not boiling down to just uh, the nutrient dense foods and really broadening that out. Um, and something I like to think about in my clinic often is just because you eat some more of the fun foods doesn't negate all the benefits of, you know, all of the fruits and veggies that you also had in a day and how it can be so tempting to reduce a day or a period of eating to good or bad. Um, and where did that even come from? Absolutely. And we're, you know, we're programmed to kind of focus in what we think is bad as well. So even if somebody has had a lot of those nutrient dense foods, you know, they're more likely to focus on the donut or the biscuit or, you know, whatever it is. And without, again, like reframing all the good things that maybe, you know, that biscuit or that donut has brought to them in their day. Um, and just, yeah, just going through really why it's more complicated than that. And it really does depend on, on each food and each situation. Um, but really, you know, not being too harsh with ourselves is really important because that's only going to be harmful in terms of mental health. And then that all ties in with our relationship with food. Right, right. And, and I guess kind of two things that I'm taking from that is that the healthiest choice might not always be the most nutritious choice, just yes. like biscuit or donut can offer us. Uh, benefits in terms of social connection or um, can feed the soul um, and also that that kind of self-flagellation um, for eating certain foods doesn't really seem to be beneficial for health either yeah exactly amazing so Maeve shall we get into some of the common myths and misconceptions around different foods yeah, let's do it. And um, so we've already, I guess, gone over that there is no such thing as the perfect diet. I am curious, 
can certain foods detox or cleanse us? Oh, good question. Yeah, this is a very common one. And one um, around January, we're going to be hearing a lot about. Um, it's an absolute myth. So our body will detox itself using our organs. So using our liver, our kidneys, our skin, our gut. And there isn't any specific food or nutrient that is going to detoxify the body in that way. The only exception is if somebody's had a medical overdose and they're being treated with, um, you know, with charcoal in terms of a medical detox, but that's totally different and that's done under medical supervision. Um, so apart from that, you know, there's nothing you know, that we can buy or add into the diet that is going to detox the body. So that's one that if anything is promoting that, that's a massive red flag in terms of nutritional nonsense. Okay. And what about a charcoal latte? You know, after, you know, in January, if I want to kind of be thinking about promoting my own well-being, will it, would a charcoal latte be, be a good idea for me? It's really not going to make a significant difference. Um, so when we're talking about charcoal in terms of the medical detox, you know, that's going to be at a, a treatment dose. Um, so, you know, we can't just get that in, in a charcoal latte. Um, so there's, I mean, there's some research around, um, possibly reducing bloating and this kind of thing, but it's not very robust evidence. Um, so there's, you know, there's potential that some people may feel slightly, you know, may feel a slight benefit for different reasons, but it's not going to detoxify your system in that way. Okay. And would you say it might be a good idea in terms of health that the research is there at the moment? In terms of charcoal and health? Yeah. For, I guess, the everyday consumer picking it up in a latte or in bread. Yeah, um, I wrote about this a little while ago, um, and I'm, so I'm trying to remember the research. It's, as far as I know, there's not an awful lot of research related to it in health. I'm not sure if you know of anything yeah. specific. I Not off the top of my head, and, and I guess I was thinking about how so often... Um, wellness culture or diet culture is really pushing things like charcoal or apple cider vinegar or certain supplements at the expense of maybe more simple and accessible things yeah. like maybe fiber or whole grains that are just a lot less sexy. Absolutely. Yes. And then there's obviously the price tag that comes along with that as well. Um, so yeah, so I was just reminded myself there. Um, so because there is um, the, what I was thinking about around bloating, it was kind of around flatulence. There's like a little bit of evidence for that. But apart from that, it, there's, there's no strong evidence at all that it's going to you know, have an overall impact on our health. Um, and I mean, there can be other things in that. So if we think about a latte, you know, if it's made on milk, you know, you're getting the goodness of the milk and everything. Um, but as you're saying, it's, it's basically, it's just that kind of trendy so-called superfood and the superfood is not a real thing. It's just a marketing term. Um, and that's really why it's so popular rather than any health benefits related to it. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for, for sharing that. And I, I always think as, as well, I'm always amazed as I kind of watch the, the evolution of, of diet culture, um, mm -hmm. which is this culture um, that is promoting a certain beauty ideal mm -hmm. um, and really that linking that food and eating to morality is how much it's pushing us away from actual food into almost like supplement replacements and juices and like really taking us away from what humans have 
essentially survived and thrived on for millions of years to living off sort of powders and pills and cleanses and IV drips, almost as though we could survive without food, which we know is completely mm -hmm. untrue. Exactly. And it's kind of, it's almost framing food, as you're saying, as not good enough compared to all these other products that you can buy. And actually, when we look at the evidence in terms of taking supplements compared to consuming whole foods, we get a much better health benefit from consuming whole foods because it's the mixture of different nutrients that's in the food. It's the structure. It's this, what we call the whole food effect and the food matrix, which we can't replicate in a pill or a powder. Mm, so interesting. Yeah, because I think lots of people think, oh, well, I'll take out this and I'll take out that and I'll just replace it with mm -hmm. a pill, but we're not having that kind of complete food and, and all of the bits that go into the food versus a supplement form. Exactly. And for some people, a supplement, you know, can be beneficial depending on the case. And sometimes it's just the next best thing if somebody doesn't eat a certain food or food group. Um, but yeah, where possible, the whole food effect and consuming those whole foods is much better. Yeah, no, thank you for shedding light on that myth. That's so important that also there is absolutely um, no kind of shame or uh, anything involved in taking a supplement. And sometimes they're mm -hmm. so beneficial, um, but where possible, thinking about where we can be food first, I think. You mentioned milk when we were talking about um, the charcoal latte. And I think dairy, certainly, I really saw since the dawn of wellness in the UK, which to me seems like 2014, 15. Mm -hmm. um, it felt like green juice like landed in London and the UK. Um, and it felt like dairy and gluten just, you know, they were off the list. They, poor things, had really bad PR teams. And I was wondering as a dietitian, what kind of you know to be true about those or, or what should we believe or not believe when it comes to maybe gluten and dairy? Yeah, great question. I absolutely agree with you. They've been so heavily demonized over the years. Um, and it's something that's still lingering now, as you were saying, it seemed to sort of start a few years ago. And it's still quite common for people to be really worried about these foods or to feel like they're bad. Um, and I think a lot of that started with clean eating, because dairy and gluten were very much demonized as part of the whole clean eating approach, um, which is really just harmful in terms of demonizing food as good or bad. And looking at, say, gluten to start with, so just to give people a bit of context. So gluten is a protein that we get in wheat, rye and barley, and it's absolutely not inherently bad. Um, if you think about kind of the different functions of gluten, so in baking, if anyone watches Bake Off, you'll know how important gluten not is. Bake Off. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, for stability, for the elasticity when baking. Um, and it's also impacting the nutrition in terms of, you know, adding in protein, as I said. Um, and when we look at some of the evidence around when people take gluten out of the diet. So first of all, there is a group of people that needs to avoid gluten and those with celiac disease, um, which is about one to two percent of the population in the UK. So that's an autoimmune condition where the body mistakenly causes damage to cells um, in the small intestine when gluten is consumed. So it's really important in that case to avoid gluten. But as I said, it's about one to 2% of the population. It's by no means the majority. And 
I think that might be where some of the hesitance around gluten comes from. I think people think, oh, you know, gluten can be bad. It can have this effect. And um, so therefore it's always bad or we need to avoid gluten. And that's really not the case. You know, that's a really specific medical condition. Mm. And then some of the other studies around um, when people um, take gluten out of their diet, the diet tends to be lower in fiber. Um, it tends to be higher in sugar. Not that that's a bad thing, but we're just looking at the overall balance of the diet in itself. Um, and in terms of being more expensive as well. So it's, it can actually make it a little bit more difficult in terms of the cost of food, but also in terms of, you know, achieving kind of an overall balance in the diet. So that's kind of the, my main thoughts around gluten, around that, you know, there's absolutely situations where, um, where people need to avoid it when they have celiac disease. And then there's also a possibility that somebody may not have celiac disease, but have a sensitivity to gluten, but that's quite a new area called non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And there's a little bit of disagreement from experts around that whole condition. Um, but for the most part, most people don't need to avoid gluten. And actually, it's probably going to be easier to maintain a balanced diet and do that in a cheaper way as well by including gluten in the diet. Yeah, mate, thank you so much for, for sharing that and really getting at some of the um, conflicting information that's out there. Um, but also perhaps why gluten lands in this funny space. Mm -hmm because of celiac disease, where there are certain members of the population with that condition that really do need to avoid it. Um, and, you know, certainly something that I hear is how, in a funny way, it's become easier for that um, population mm -hmm. because there's so many more gluten-free products, which is great. And at the same time, because so many people in restaurants and things are saying, oh, I'm gluten intolerant or, or whatever, when actually they're not, that staff in restaurants and things are becoming much more relaxed like oh it's fine when somebody may actually have celiac disease so really kind of differing um ramifications mm -hmm. and i'm curious i know that something comes up is as people go off and they have food intolerance tests um or they go through different stages of kind of testing mm -hmm. and they come back with a igg or intolerance to gluten and i was curious if you had any thoughts about those kinds of, of testing for food intolerances? Oh, I absolutely do. Um, so those tests, um, I think it's a really important message to spread that they don't tell you whether you're intolerant to a food. They tell you whether you've recently consumed a food or not. So basically the body will produce these antibodies that the IgG test picks up in response to foods that you've recently consumed. But having that in your system doesn't mean that you're intolerant to those foods. So what happens when you get one of those tests is um, if you ever see the reports, it's, you know, it's loads and loads of different foods are listed. And then it tells you, you know, avoid these foods. These foods are okay. Um, and it's a really long list. So it would become a really restrictive diet if you start to take out all of those foods and it's unnecessary. What I do see sometimes is if some people um, have IBS, for example, or gut sensitivities, and that's maybe one of the reasons that they went to get this test in the first place, they get the test and then they cut out all these foods. And sometimes they do actually feel a bit better because they've cut out so many foods, but that it's not for that reason. It's often there's another food in there. So maybe they've actually were a bit sensitive to the amount of fiber they were eating, or maybe it was um, their FODMAP intake, which is um, a type of carbohydrate that's more difficult for the body to digest. 
So there can be different reasons and then people can end up avoiding far too much food for no reason um, because it seems like that the test told them to and actually I feel better when I follow that advice. Um, so really it's something I would never recommend and it's just an absolute waste of money. Right, right. So you wouldn't recommend there's no kind of test you could go and get to tell you that you might be intolerant to gluten. So in terms of gluten, um, it would be going to your doctor and getting the blood tests for celiac disease. Um, and then depending on the results of that test and to, for that test to be accurate, you also have to make sure that you're regularly consuming gluten containing foods in the lead up to that. So you can't reduce your gluten intake and then go and get that test because then you can get a false positive result. Um, and then, oh, sorry, false negative result. Um, yeah. And then um, based on that, they might um, do a biopsy. So um, they might test and um, take a sample from your gut and test that. And there's also sometimes a genetic test that they, that they do. So that would all be done from your doctor. Um, so, so that's really, I mean, the only reliable way to get that tested. The other thing is, if you feel like there's some sensitivity to wheat, if you have um, celiac disease ruled out, that's where going to see a dietitian and having a look at the diet to see if um, specific types of exclusion diets, if it's appropriate, you know, depending on the person's history, um, can be the next best thing then to see if they are um, reacting to certain foods. And then you would always do the reintroduction, though, to make sure um, that it's actually that food that's making the difference. So yeah. in terms of gluten, they're really the two um, reliable ways of testing that. Amazing. And something else that you said that was really interesting is perhaps when people cut out a whole load of foods and then initially they can feel a little bit better. And mm -hmm. um, something I'm always really interested in um, exploring and explaining to clients is often when we are restricting foods, they can actually worsen digestive symptoms yeah. um, due to the adaptations of the digestive system. And I was wondering if you might be able to speak to that at all. Yeah, that's a really good point as well. Um, and that can absolutely happen. So say, for example, with um, the FODMAPs that I mentioned. So these are types of carbohydrates that are found in loads of different foods and a lot of nutrient dense foods as well. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just that certain people are more sensitive to them than others. So it's not that they're bad. And actually, a lot of them are really good in terms of feeding our gut bacteria um, and helping to keep that in a healthy balance. So for somebody who then cuts out a lot of foods and say, for example, if they aren't consuming these um, higher FODMAP foods, and then if you reintroduce them, it can take a bit of adjustment because the gut bacteria is feeding again on these foods that it hasn't had for a while. So it may lead to more gas, more bloating in the short term and um, changes in the levels of water in the gut as well. Um, as everything's kind of adapting and getting used to those foods again, and um, so that's one of the mechanisms that can come in when we have actually cut out food um, and then we actually feel worse when we bring it back in. Often that will then get better with exposure, um, but it's often about um, that more gradual exposure. So building it up more gradually um, rather than going in with too much too soon. Mm, yeah, completely. And, and it's such an um, incredible way that the gut sort of adapts and the um, gut mi microbiota work, I guess, in terms of, of helping us digest and process these foods. And something else I often look at earlier up on um, the digestive tract is really looking at how perhaps sometimes when there's a restriction of, of lots of, of foods and potentially 
not enough energy coming in, mm -hmm. we even get changes in the way in which the stomach responds to food. So when we normally digest food, we get this stomach, um, it's called accommodation, but the stomach sort of relaxes and expands to take on the, the amount of nutrients and energy required to meet our needs. Mm -hmm. and perhaps if somebody's cut out a lot of foods and they're not quite eating enough, this process can um, be compromised. And so the stomach stays a bit more rigid and perhaps we feel a bit more sensitive. Um, we can also have things like delayed gastric emptying. So the food stays in the stomach a little bit longer, mm -hmm. um, which might kind of, again, leave us feeling a little bit more kind of um, uncomfortable or, or we might feel fuller for a bit longer or we might feel fuller sooner when actually these are the ways in which the body is adapting to maybe not quite enough food coming in off the back of, of ruling out or taking out lots of foods. Um, so really looking at all of these different processes and how sometimes cutting lots of things out mm -hmm. can actually worsen digestive symptoms rather than actually make them better. Exactly. And as you were saying, especially if cutting out so many foods actually leads to a low amount of energy in the system. So there's really not enough calories to fuel the whole body systems, then the digestive system is likely to slow down. Um, so that's something, as you're saying, that can have a knock-on effect and can start to feel sluggish and uncomfortable um, until you build back up to make sure that you're actually giving the body enough fuel. Yeah, and, and the crazy thing is, and, and I obviously really want to hold in mind people that experience um, untoward digestive symptoms because it can mm -hmm. feel really uncomfortable and unpleasant. Yeah. But the natural response, I guess, is, oh gosh, I've got to cut out more. And so we go on, go through this process of maybe cutting out more and more foods as digestive symptoms get worse and worse and worse. And I think that's where your advice to maybe seek out some professional support off the back of maybe having celiac disease ruled out by the GP mm -hmm. um, is so crucial to work with somebody that maybe knows about how that digestive system functions and can really support you to actually have a wide range of foods in the diet for for well-being exactly because if we think about gut health as well it's that variety of food um, that is really beneficial in terms of producing a variety of beneficial gut bacteria so the more and more restricted our diet becomes that's going to impact the overall gut microbiome so actually when we're thinking longer term that food flexibility piece and not being too restricted is so important as well yeah, massively. Um, so coming on to dairy. Mm -hmm. Yes. So with dairy, um, it's yeah, very similar in terms of being um, demonized, similar to gluten. Um, again, it's interesting that there are, you know, there are valid reasons why somebody may need to avoid or limit their dairy intake. Um, so if somebody has lactose intolerance for example so that's where the body doesn't produce enough of a certain enzyme in order to um, properly break down and digest lactose and that isn't very common in this part of the world um, in terms of um, around the uk and ireland it does become slightly more likely as we get older um, but there's different populations where it is a higher incidence um, and then there's also, it's more likely to happen in babies where they may have an allergy to milk, a cow's milk protein allergy. And with that though, it's still, you know, quite a small percentage of the population overall. And most of the babies will outgrow it by the age of one or at least by the age of about five. Um, so it's not a very big proportion of our population, again, that needs to 
um, avoid or limit dairy, but there are absolutely circumstances where people can be either allergic or intolerant to dairy. So a lot of the myths around dairy is um, that consuming dairy, first of all, you know, can lead to intolerance as we've talk, spoken about and it can for some people but not for everyone um, and there's a lot of other myths around our skin around um, heart health around cancer risk and it's really it's not supported by the evidence base um, if we look at some of these individually and um, so say whether dairy causes cancer um, so a lot of this comes from uh, messages around um, the hormones being used to produce dairy and first of all that doesn't happen in the UK and Ireland and um, there's really strict rules around that um, but even still you know in countries where that does happen there isn't strong evidence to say that that then leads to cancer and actually there's certain types of cancer it looks like um, consuming dairy may actually reduce the risk of cancer so that's fairly new and it's not um, very it's not totally established just yet, um, but it's yes, yeah, it's, it's looking it's looking quite good um, for certain types of cancer. Wow! And um, uh, sorry, I have this really interesting um, stat that I found that I'd just love to to share on this as as, as we're talking about some of the hormones in in dairy that in the UK and Ireland they're not added in, but they can contain some um, steroid hormones just because it's, it's coming from an animal. Yeah. And I pulled this, that ice cream contains something like 611 nanograms of estrogen, mm -hmm. and the contraceptive pill contains about 35,000. Wow. And it's something like you'd have to eat 5.7 kilos of ice cream every day to get the same amount of estrogen as the con contraceptive pill. Because I think that's what people think, or, or at least that's the, the message that's sometimes promoted, mm -hmm. that, Oh, dairy contains so much estrogen when actually it's quite a minute amount. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it in perspective um, and actually giving those numbers. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, in terms of the other one, I guess skin, that's another one that yeah, comes up a lot. Um, a lot. Mm -hmm. And with that one, it's there is some evidence, but it's from quite small studies and it's looking at um, groups of people rather than directly testing it. So some studies have found that having low fat dairy may increase the risk of acne. Again, it's only been in about, you know, a few small studies. So it's not a very robust link. And actually it's more related to low fat dairy rather than ordinary dairy. Mm -hmm. So again, it's something that um, if somebody, if you suspect that, so first of all, because when we talk about diet and acne, I think sometimes it sounds like, you know, there's always a link. And for some people it, diet isn't going to impact their acne at all. Um, for some people it may, and for some people maybe dairy might have an impact, but we don't have strong evidence to back that up. Yeah, I think that's really powerful. And I remember hearing a dermatologist um, talk about this saying that giving up dairy for most people will not cure acne like it's it's more complex than that it's a bit like when we're looking at this whole picture of health and well-being that it's a lot more complex than that just cause and effect and in a small subset it might have some impact but certainly not for everybody yeah exactly yeah um any other ones on dairy Maeve that you hear come up yeah um, I guess around heart health is another common one um so there's I guess we need, we need to look at the different types of dairy, but 
a lot of people will talk about full fat and low fat dairy um, where actually it's really ordinary and low fat dairy because ordinary dairy isn't high in fat to begin with. So I think there's a lot of fear around foods like um, cheese, for example, and ordinary yogurt, ordinary milk. And again, there's more evidence coming out about ordinary dairy because of it, it brings us back to that whole food effect, that food matrix we mentioned earlier. Um, so it looks like the way the nutrients interact with each other and the composition and the fact that the saturated fat that we get in dairy has this kind of wrapper around it. Um, it's a, a specific type of membrane and that it seems that that makes it act in a different way. And that actually looks like it may have a neutral or even a protective effect in terms of heart disease. So there have been some more studies coming out um, showing that, you know, people who were in the higher group for, you know, eating more cheese actually had better outcomes in terms of heart health. Um, so again, that's, it's quite a new area, but it's just showing us that it's not that black and white. Um, and actually there's more evidence to support ordinary dairy rather than, you know, everyone should be having the low fat versions super interesting and I think what all of this is getting at and I know that we had like hundreds of topics that we could have spoken about today from intermittent fasting to apple cider vinegar to dairy to gluten is that what you know you are speaking about in terms of going through different studies and more robust um, evidence compared to what we are seeing by the media and promoted in terms of wellness um, is very different. And when you're speaking about these things, it really sounds like we're getting at so much of the gray that it's, it's not that good or bad, black and white should cut it out. Or sh it's, it's really thinking about the bigger picture stuff. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, and I'm really passionate about that because again, it takes away a lot of the fear and a lot of the stigmatizing of certain foods. Um, and it, yeah, it just promotes that flexibility piece that we've been mentioning. Yeah. And I'm also just thinking as we're talking and I know we've mainly gone over dairy and gluten is I'm thinking about the calcium, the B12 yes. in the dairy, the protein, mm -hmm. um, the, the fact that things like dairy actually can be relatively cheap sources of those nutrients that foods that contain gluten might also be rich in, in things like fiber. And I guess as we transition into some of that, maybe, and I know we don't have loads of time left, but I would love to hear a little bit more about maybe your top tips for people to take away in terms of practicing some gentle nutrition um, in their everyday lives. Yeah, so that's a great point in terms of, I guess it brings us back to that whole, you know, whole food piece and that we don't just get one nutrient within a food, there's a variety of nutrients. Um, and that helps us to look at it in a more nuanced way and to kind of celebrate food a little bit more rather than being too black and white about it. Um, so in terms of some of my top tips with gentle nutrition, a lot of the time it's about bringing it back to basics. So if we think about what is the type of meal that makes us feel good? It's something that's going to give us energy. It's something that, you know, may help to keep our bowels moving regularly. And um, we're going to feel full and satisfied afterwards. Of course, it should be tasty. Um, so it's all of those things together. And if we bring it back to, you know, what foods are 
going to help in terms of supporting health, but also bringing us those benefits in terms of our energy and our bowels and everything. It's often bringing it back to four main food groups at each of our meals. So thinking about having some sort of starchy carbohydrate. So that can be your pasta, rice, potatoes, quinoa, couscous. Um, and again, just getting as much variety within all of these food groups as possible. It's going to be more enjoyable and we're going to get more different nutrients if we're eating different foods. So we get some starchy carbohydrate, um, a protein, food, a high protein food. So something like meat, chicken, fish, beans, tofu, eggs. And that's really good in terms of helping us to feel full. And also, of course, you know, protein plays a really important role in the diet um, and in the body in terms of growth repair, being a building block for bones and muscles and um, in terms of our enzyme function and everything. And when I was speaking about carbohydrates there, you know, it's the carbohydrate is the main fuel for the body. So it's carbohydrates in general are just demonized. Um, but they're so important in terms of providing energy. And then we also get, you know, other nutrients, as we were saying, in terms of if it's a whole grain, we'll get, um, we'll get fiber, we'll get more B vitamins. Mm. And even, you know, the white versions um, in terms of white bread in the UK is fortified with extra iron and calcium and B vitamins as well. Uh, so we're still I, getting I love sharing that with people. Um, again, just getting at the gray. Yeah. Exactly. I think that's some people can find that quite surprising to hear from a dietitian or a nutritionist that actually, you know, there's, there's benefits from white bread and from white flour. And even white potatoes um, yeah, exactly. that have yeah. been demonized as well um, contain, you know, more potassium than a banana. And maybe I'm, I'm really curious to ask you because something that comes up for me in clinic a lot and mm -hmm. it just, I think, off the back of diet culture and what we're brushing up against out there is, oh, but is it okay to have starchy carbs with every meal? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> Thank you. So it's, it's great to, you know, in terms of energy, we need energy all throughout the day. Um, it really helps to balance out that meal. And especially, you know, it's, it's extra important basically for people who are quite active, but even um, for people who aren't as active, um, it's still, it's fueling the background systems that's going on in your body. You know, the brain needs quite a lot of carbohydrate um, to function each day as well. So it's absolutely fine. And, you know, I recommend a source of carbohydrates with each meal. Mm, yeah. And even each snack. Yeah, absolutely. It can be included in snacks. Um, and I always just have to caveat with like, it, it really will always depend on the individual and their circumstances. But if we're talking general here, then yes, absolutely. Um, so yeah, and then others, so we've kind of spoken about two of the four kind of food groups to think about at a meal, um, fruit and veg. So to add in some colors, some crunch, and then you're also getting in terms of vitamins, minerals, fiber again, um, and then fats. So fats really important as well. And again, they're really satisfying in terms of making the meal um, feel filling and helps our energy levels to stabilize, you know, because then the overall meal, and when you were talking about gastric emptying, it helps to slow that system down. So our blood sugars don't spike too quickly when we have fiber, proteins, and fats along with our carbohydrates. Um, so thinking about balancing meals in that way, and it's, so it's really not that complicated. It's thinking about bringing it back to those four food groups and then within that, getting as much variety as we can. And then absolutely then, you know, well, what else can I add for a bit more taste and satisfaction as well? That's absolutely valid. 
And it's also then in terms of gentle nutrition, it's, well, what can we add in to improve our health or to make us feel better rather than focus on, okay, what am I going to restrict and take away? Mm. So we could look at um, actually, you know, maybe I might feel better if I had some more higher fiber foods. So maybe gradually we'll start to increase that or looking at when we were talking about fats at a meal um, you know, going for the really heart healthy fats like olive oil, nuts and seeds. And it's not to say that other types of fats are off limits, um, but it's just about getting that overall balance. Yeah, totally. And I just think having fun with it um, mm-hmm. and really mixing it up is, is always what kind of allows us to feel nourished on all those different levels after a mm-hmm. meal. Um, and I love what you said about kind of adding color or crunch or kind of other textures, um, maybe creaminess or um, flavors like spice that can bring a meal to life. And when Mm. we have all those components, not only is it taking care of the gentle nutrition side of things, but also the vitamin P for pleasure and um, helping us to feel like after that meal, uh, we feel satisfied and we can kind of move on with whatever we're doing until we start to feel hungry again. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Maeve, I could honestly chat to you for days and I know that we had so many things that we were going to go over. So, you know, I think at some point we will definitely have to um, have you on again, if that's something that you'd be open to. Absolutely. Um, That'd be great. I am just wondering if you have maybe a one top tip or some kind of something that you might want to leave listeners with um, and then maybe share where they can find you, where they can find your incredible book and the wealth of information that you put out to the world. Oh, thank you so much. Um, Yeah, I guess what we've been really talking about a lot of the time is around nutrition communication and around evidence-based health messages. So I think I'd like to leave people with thinking about their nutrition nonsense detection kit. So it's this kind of three-step approach I talk about when you see a message or you see somebody spreading nutrition advice. First of all, think about, well, who is this person and are they qualified to spread that message? So do they have any qualification related to nutrition? Is there any red flags jumping out at you? Does it seem sensationalist, too good to be true? Does it just seem a bit mad? Often, it is. If, if it seems that way, then it is has been overstated or it's unevidence-based. Um, so it's just important to be aware of some of those red flags. And also then, of course, bringing it back to the evidence. So does this person seem to be um, quoting evidence, explaining the evidence? Or if, if you have a background in science yourself, you know, you could look and see, actually, is that statement backed up by evidence? So food plays just such an amazing and an important role in our health um but at the same time if it seems really dramatic or too good to be true and then absolutely your red flag should be waving and just think about your nutrition nonsense kit i love that a nutrition nonsense detection kit (laughs) i um when i speak in schools i i um explain something a little bit similar and i guess it just pulls down to this sense of like if it sounds too good to be true then it probably is in terms of like all of these health benefits but also I love what you said about how food plays such an important role in our health mm-hmm. but that's not just our physical health and even not just boiling that down to just our mental health that that's like a complete picture not forgetting mm-hmm. 
our social well-being, connection, um, pleasure, joy, all of those parts that make up that overall picture of well-being, which I think is so, so important. Absolutely. Maeve, where can everyone find you? So you can find me on Instagram and uh, Facebook at Dietetically Speaking. On Twitter, I'm at Dietetic Speak. And then my website is dieteticallyspeaking.com. If anyone's interested in the book, it's on Amazon and I have it linked to my website as well. Um, but it's your no-nonsense guide to eating well. And if anyone's a nutrition professional who's interested in Nutrimote, then I'm at Nutrimote on all social media platforms. Um, and there's a private Facebook group for Nutrimote as well. Amazing. Maeve, thank you so, so much. And I highly, highly recommend Maeve's book, um, Your No-Nonsense Guide to Eating Well, um, as such a little Bible when it comes to some of this gentle nutrition and no-nonsense guides to eating for all of those aspects of our health. Maeve, thank you so, so, so much. And hopefully we'll get to have another conversation again soon. Thanks so much, Isa. It's been lovely chatting with you. Bye. Bye. So that was Maeve on being a food realist rather than a food perfectionist. And I really, really loved this message. And so perhaps an invitation this week to just zoom out and think about how we can all practice a little bit more food neutrality, a little bit more self-compassion around food and practice tuning in to being our own food realist too. Thanks again so much, Maeve. And also a big thank you to our sponsor, Bimuno. Don't forget that you can get 20% off at the checkout using the code SHADES20. All right, everyone, I will be back next week. We've got a super exciting episode and guest, and I cannot wait to see you then. Have a great week. Bye. Thank you.